0: Welcome to Roundhill Radio, the podcast from Roundhill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Okay. Welcome to Roundhill Radio. I'm Leslie. I'm Ed. Good morning, Ed.
1: How are you, Leslie?
0: Good. Uh, those who are watching on video will notice we haven't changed our outfits. We're recording five minutes after we just recorded the last episode. <laughs> Um, I'm actually going to be gone next week. So we're we've made this all very strategic. Um, so if you listen to last week's episode, and I highly recommend that you do, because it will make this week's episode make much more sense. Uh, we are exploring Ed's personal and career history, his journey into becoming a minister. It's a doozy if you haven't listened to it yet. Get ready. It's magnificent. I'm still imagining this little church on the cliffs of Scotland, and it is windswept and gray, and it's everything I hope it will be. Um, But now we are uh, picking back up with Ed, the young seminarian uh, at Union, right?
1: At Union. At Union.
0: You you made a comment at the end of the last episode that your time serving in Scotland had helped you, um, determine what you wanted to study in seminary. I will admit my impression of seminary, and this might be a, a Yale divinity school thing I picked up was that there's kind of a set program. Um,
1: yeah.
0: there isn't necessarily a pick and choose element. So, so what in that is it, were you wanting to focus on? I think when you were in seminary,
1: yeah, so Union had a little bit of both. There was something of a pick and choose element, but not, not a huge amount. It was kind of a, you know, a program that was fairly clearly laid out. <clears throat> and uh, by the way, it's really interesting to look back at that now because I still think se- it, it's been said that seminary education is still busy at the work of preparing pastors for 1955. <laughs> yeah, not a very encouraging thought, right? But if you take a look at a seminary curriculum, well, if you took a look at it in the 80s when I was in seminary or today, you'll see it is still very tied to a form of education that was being used in 1910. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really like gotten out of that. You had to take classes in the biblical field, the historical field, the theological field, you know, as if these things could be separated, which they really cannot. Um, and when you think about how much music is involved in the life of a congregation, talking to you, especially here. And then think of the fact that you can go through three years of seminary and never take a single class related to worship and choosing music, working with colleagues in music. I mean, that's pretty striking. That's not good, right? Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> so I did find at Union that there were some uh, pathways that were already pretty well laid down that had to be followed. But what I did find a way to do was to accent more on the pick and choose side, um, especially around languages. So that was the one thing that I have always had, have had a real interest in. So I was able to study Hebrew and Greek and get that going. And, um, that was probably in some ways for me, the highlight of seminary, actually, it's one of the great unique things that seminaries can do. They have all these great ways to teach languages. So I was able to take advantage of that. And, uh, You know, I was a part-time pastor on the side all throughout seminary. I served a tiny little Baptist church in Queens for a while. I was a chaplain at the YMCA Midtown near Lincoln Center for a while, which is a wonderful experience. You know, just had a really interesting group of people. So all through seminary that that took place. And um, so and then when I graduated from seminary, I was invited to serve as an assistant pastor at a cathedral in Scotland. So back to Scotland for two years and I was in Edinburgh serving as the St. Giles Cathedral is considered sort of the home church of Presbyterianism in the world. <clears throat> and they used to have a practice of having an American assistant for two years. Mm. So I was able to do that and work with some really wonderful staff, but you know, it was also fun to work in a building that had been around since about 1200 and I I just thought that was really neat, you know, to be around that space and all of that history. That was fantastic. But then came back and, uh, you know, started up a church in um, or started to be involved as a solo pastor in a church in Hopkinton, New Hampshire. So um, that was how my family was growing at that time. And it was just a very interesting part of the process, uh, you know, to see how. To see how it then sort of evolved in a very traditional way. That was the sort of unusual thing for me. After having gone through so many years, right, of little of this, little of that, it's on, it's off, it's on again. Then suddenly to be a pastor full time in a local church. That was interesting.
0: Yeah, I have so many questions. Um, did it feel like, I'm sort of getting this impression that maybe it felt like it was, you know, you'd been on this winding road and yeah. then once you were officially a pastor, if, oh, did it feel like you got sort of locked into a to a train track that yeah. uh, sort of what people were like, oh, this is this is who you are now, go in this yeah. direction, especially when you came back to America?
1: I think that's a great way of phrasing it. It's a great insight because, you know, whenever any of us steps, I mean, this is true in general in life, but this is certainly really true in churches. Churches are very traditional institutions. They're always thinking about what did we do in the past, right? And how are we going to keep it going forever? So when you become a pastor, it's not so much about, hey, what are the new things you're going to bring that we're going to start brand new? It's about Ed, here's what we've been doing, and here's how you're going to help us make that even more effective or interesting, even if I'm not interested in it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the liabilities, I think, coming into the role of a pastor of a church that, you know, we may not hear as much about when we're students, that we really should hear about, that one of the first things you have to confront is history right. and the history of a place, right? Right. Which, so- I
0: mean, yeah, I mean, you'd think as your time in scotland that that cathedral of course so steeped in history yes you know that did that in some ways prepare you for your next role but but i mean i feel like it's very apples and oranges isn't it you know the two different parishes
1: yeah well it's uh, it's a great question because that place talk about being steeped in history right St. Giles Cathedral, when I went there, still had the regimental flags from all of these Scottish regiments lined down the, the central nave of the cathedral. So you looked up and, of course, these things had been there so long, you're about ready to fall <laughs> apart in a second. They'd lost a lot of their luster, let's put it that way. But yeah. there they were. right? Nobody wanted to take them down. And the other thing that was interesting is that, you know, in Protestant Christianity in Scotland, uh, there are things that aren't supposed to happen because you don't want to appear, or at least at that point, didn't want to appear Roman Catholic. There was, there's tension between the two. And I remember when they first started using candles in the sanctuary at St. Giles, that brought, there was a big hullabaloo about that because no, we were Protestants. We don't use candles like that. Oh my gosh. So yeah. Talk about history. It did prepare me like a big heads up. Like Ed, uh, take note. (laughs) You know, you might run into this yourself sometime. <laughs> so it's, you know, in, in churches, we often say like the, the real statement of faith is we never did it that way before, you know, when whenever there, there's a new thing. <laughs> well, yeah, we never did it that way before, which means right. we're not gonna start doing it now. <laughs> so right. just get, get that new idea out of your head. <clears throat> um so, I do have to say that over the years, um probably. One of the most gratifying parts of ministry is that I've found that, in fact, people in churches do want to try new things, but aren't often given the resources or the encouragement or the wherewithal to try them. So, you know, we all want to be successful when we try something new. Right. We don't want it to flop. So that's probably why some church people resist newness. They just are afraid of failing and they don't want to look back.
0: Of course. Yeah. And I feel like, oh, I feel often like those, those times of change, or those, those, those little changes that feel insignificant to some people. Um, yeah. that they, they, it's so often tied to something else or something yes. you don't know about or some very personal sure. story. Like it's, you know, when people come to church, they will some, you know, they'll bring them their whole selves. And so, you know, one little thing that's like, you've, it's like you've moved a chair in their house. It's true. You know, or you put your cup down without a coaster in their house because this is their house of worship. And they take it very, I take a lot of ownership in it for 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 better or worse. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times it's for better, like you said, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sort of interesting. So, okay. So you're in New Hampshire as a, as a young man, as a first solo pastor. How long did you stay there?
1: So my family and I were there for 12 years. Wow. A pretty long time. I mean, the average... Stay for a pastor in a Protestant congregation in the United States is about four years, which is pretty striking when you think about what a short time that is. I mean, when you really think about how long it takes to get to know a place and people, you know, and to feel at home in a place. We almost left at one point because there was a call to consider another opportunity, but we chose to stay in New Hampshire for those 12 years. And that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. But eventually we did decide to move and move to Hartford, Connecticut. And so that was a very different setting. It was an urban setting, enormous building, you know, a congregation with a lot of features to it, a lot of dimensions to it. And it also had a long history, but a very different kind of history. Um, it was, a, it was a church that was kind of a successor to a lot of other churches. So there had been a, historically, there'd been a church in downtown Hartford in the 1800s, and it closed and became another congregation, and it closed and became another congregation. And when that closed, it became the one that I served. So ah. there'd been all these moves, you know, they were following the population growth in Hartford, which was kind of a smart thing to do. <clears throat> but um, that church also had you know, many, many dimensions to its outreach. So that it gave, it provided all kinds of opportunities for that. So it was a wonderful place to be. And it was a church that had this strong history of racial justice, interestingly enough. And in 1910, they had hosted um, a, a racial justice conference. I mean, imagine doing this in 1910. And in the 1960s, they had partnered with a black church in Hartford to create memberships, uh, you know, sort of friendships between the two members of the two congregations. And interestingly enough, that lives to today. Mm -hmm. So it's something that really has endured. It wasn't so much active when I was there, but it's come back. So, um, you know, and this journey has just kind of continued to unfold. And then, you know, I was in Hartford for 14 years And in some ways thought I was always going to stay there and lo and behold, got a call out of the blue from someone at Round Hill Community Church to see if I might consider coming to Round Hill. And so there was, you know, another chapter opened up. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much been the case that I haven't actively looked for a new ministry setting in my life. They've more or less come up because of something that I wasn't looking for or someone recommended you know, that I take a look at an opportunity. And that's kind of interesting, too, because I have a friend who told me that he said that as soon as he would get into a new ministry setting, usually within a year, he was looking at opportunities in other places. So I guess that's why the average is four, right? Four years, because people yeah. like that are like, I've yeah, been here a year, I'm kind of bored. What do I do next? And on they go. So, so, it's not been the case for me. I've tended to stay for longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. and I think that's been part of the pleasure for me is staying a long time or longer time, mm-hmm. really getting to know people and really giving people a chance to get to know me a little bit better. So that's been mm-hmm. that's been the way that it's unfolded.
0: That's amazing. what a What a great journey. I think you know, it's so easy to look at the end. And mm. assume, you know, the, you know, the, we'll look at the end of a book and know how it started. Yeah. And I mean, the, the journey you were on for so many years that brought you here, I think is so, you know, interesting and multifaceted. And um, I'm just so <laughs> grateful for you sharing that with us today. Yeah. It's and I'm right grateful up. you That's ended it. up at Round Hill because we, this is I love it here. And I love working with you.
1: It's Hey, listen, what a great team we have, right? We have just a remarkable, remarkable group of people. And that's such a joy. And I think right now, um, all of us, each of us could be writing a very interesting chapter about what life is like now as we prepare to move out of this global pandemic. there's a wonderful teacher at Hartford Seminary, his name is Scott Thummell, and I'm taking a class right now called Religious Innovation. And he said at the last class, he said, look, just take a blank sheet of paper and ask yourself the question, what do you think it's gonna be? What do you want it to be? What's your dream church? You know, Are there things that you wanna keep? Are there things you wanna let go? Are there things that you wanna start that you've never done before? And I think this is a time to do that. It's uh, you know, in in some ways, it I see that as a time as a way to honor all of the people who've lost so much mm-hmm. uh, during this past year. You know, people who won't get the opportunity to ask those questions and position their lives differently. I think for those of us who are thinking about what's the next chapter, it's a way to say, yeah, how can we make sure that we offer ourselves completely and openly to whatever the future can bring, you know, as much as possible and not be too constrained by what's gone on before us, um, right? There's been too much loss to, Mm -hmm. to think of doing that. This is not a time to cling to what is most familiar. I think it's a time to let go and open ourselves to what may be unfamiliar, but really beautiful and welcoming and surprising, so. That's, the, that's my attitude now is this next chapter. And I think I've got some great traveling colleagues here with you and our team in order to do that. I couldn't think of being on a better team. So that's my
0: <laughs> Well, grace that's,
1: that's at the heart of it all.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think of, you know, all the innovations that came out of the aftermath of world war II. Mm, Uh, Obviously, I mean, the scale of this is so different, but I think the global impact that, you know, something that has touched every person in the entire world, you know, the world is going to be different. We've all collectively as a planet gone through something. Um, I think your, your point is so well made and the opportunity there, um, shouldn't be wasted and it's uh almost a it almost feels like a responsibility right mm. just to see yeah. and to innovate and just look at what what we can create out of the chaos
1: I I know and, and I think if if scientists and researchers were able to create vaccines this quickly just imagine what else we're capable of doing. I mean, that's the thought that goes through my mind, you know, and and don't we want to explore that? I guess I would go, Leslie, to bring it all the way back to the first part of the whole discussion. I think about my mother and her binoculars and her microscope, right? Mm -hmm. And just, hey, let's explore this. Let's be curious about the world again. Let's approach it like we don't know what's out there. And that's the, that's the spirit that I would like to approach the future with, curiosity and wonder and imagination. Those, to me, are the great gifts right at the heart of the religious journey.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you for that, Ed. And um, I'm looking at my calendar. After this, we are on a little summer break, uh, but we will be back uh, early fall to be with you all. I'm not going to lock ourselves into a date right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Thank you, thank but you so we much. We will be
0: back. We will be back. Absolutely. With, <laughs> you can believe it, season six of Round Hill <laughs> Radio. How did that happen? I don't know. <laughs> six. Oh, gee. oh, So, thank you all so much for listening. Oh. We are so grateful to have you on the other on the other side of this. Um, yeah. As always, um, like, subscribe, and shoot us an email at podcast at roundhillcommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Round Hill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Round Hill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillcommunitychurch.org.